Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About This? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Today, we're joined by the lovely Caitlin Bywater, or otherwise known as the Rehab Mama on Instagram, who's just had her third baby boy, Banjo. Caitlin is a physiotherapist who lives in rural New South Wales and is a big advocate for women's health and the other half of the Nurtured Village podcast, which I always recommend listening to. Caitlin often shows the realities of mum life online and is one of the realest people I've ever met. She's so resilient. She's a survivor of hyperemesis, birth trauma, and manages a prolapse after her second baby and has just had a planned cesarean bringing her new baby boy into the world. So today we get to chat to her about her story and continue normalizing the challenges in motherhood. Caitlin, can we talk about this? Yes. Oh my God. I feel famous after that. <laughs> like people like, describe yourself and I'm like, I'm a hot mess. And I'm like, you make me sound like I've got my life together. Oh no. I love that you're a hot mess. <laughs> All right. Let's start from the beginning then. Yep. Did you always know you wanted to be a mother? I'm not maternal at all. Can relate. Not, not in the slightest. And so Colby was very much a surprise baby, my eldest. Um, when it was funny because like the week before I found out we were pregnant, I'd been to the doctor because I was having um I used to get really horrific period pain and we have a family history of endo and cysts and mum had to have a really early hysterectomy because of her pain. So I went to the doctor thinking, okay, we need to do some investigations. And the doctor's words were, yeah, it's probably endo. You probably won't get pregnant. See me after you've been trying for a year, like no pain relief, no nothing. And I was like, well, that's it. 24, never going to be pregnant. A week later, I was like, I think I'm pregnant and like rushed to do the pregnancy test and was like, holy dooly. Um, And it was so far from our plan. Gary and I had only been together for 18 months and because we met long distance, we'd only been living together for like three or four months. Like it was fresh. We'd just moved back from interstate so I moved to Western Australia to live with him we packed up and moved back to the east coast and then within two or three months of being back on the east coast we found out so it was so early that I was like I don't know if this is gonna go ahead I don't like I didn't just immediately go oh yeah happy family I was like I don't know if he's ready for this and then I told him and he had this Cheshire cat grin and was happy as Larry so that was beautiful um but yeah was not planning (laughs) planning on it whatsoever yeah then we've gone from none to three in four years four years <laughs> oh my god so that uh five five yeah so Cole was born in 2016 and now Banjo yeah so that happened quick and so you didn't have very easy pregnancies either did you no I hate pregnancy can't fathom how my sister has beautiful pregnancies and loves it and I'm like screw you you're the worst 
So with Colby, I had hyperemesis, um, which is severe vomiting and nausea in pregnancy. It only affects 1% to 3% of pregnancies. So typical me was like, I'm not that 1%. I'm, everybody spews this much. Um, so I had hyperemesis with Colby, which meant at about five weeks, I started throwing up and it went from just feeling a bit seedy to 40 times a day, throwing up, having to run out of appointments with patients. I mean, I'm a physio, I'm touching people. The grossest thing you could think of is having to go and throw up and then sanitize and wash your hands and everything. Um, So that escalated really quickly. I was admitted to hospital by 12 weeks and I had lost 50. 15 kilos it was 13 or 15 kilos and I only I was quite fit then and only weighed 68 kilos or 70 kilos so that was that was like 20 percent of my body weight that I'd lost it was massive and I look back at photos now and you can see like my collarbone sticking out and I just looked so unwell but were people telling you that you looked so great no, I think, I don't know whether I just hit it. I was lucky. No one was ever like, you're glowing. They were like, you look like shit. Aww. You look terrible. Which I was like, well, good, because I feel that. And yes. you can see how unwell I am. Yes. Um. So, yeah, that continued the whole pregnancy with Colby. So I was in and out of hospital. I sort of went in every two or three days for fluids. And, yeah, it was it was a very medical pregnancy. So did you know that you had hyperemesis? I had Googled the bejesus out of it because mm-hmm. I was like, you get morning sickness, but surely this isn't. Like mm-hmm. people wouldn't get pregnant again if you throw up this much. Like this is interrupting my life. Um, and at seven weeks I went to the doctor and I was like, I just, I've tried all the things. I've tried the over-the-counter stuff. And even my boss was like, you know, this isn't normal, don't you? Like you you shouldn't be this unwell. Um, and so, yeah, I'd done lots of Googling and they were like, oh, there's this thing called hyperemesis. And I was like, surely it's not me. Like, yes, I'm sick, but surely I'm not that 1%. And turns out I was. I was really lucky that I was onto it and my GP was onto it and I got treatment. Yeah, it sounds like you had the right support. Absolutely, because I, I still hear of so many women who – have never actually had that diagnosis or have never actually had, like you yourself didn't get the the medical support you should mm. have had. Yeah, it's just so heartbreaking. I can't imagine doing that and not having the, the medical support that I did. So you didn't have it in all three pregnancies? No. So I oh, got really lucky. Yeah, which is quite uncommon because mm. they've found that there's a genetic yes. um, link, that there is a gene that's switched on in women that have HG. So, yeah, I don't know whether I'm just super lucky and I feel like I'm always scared to say it because, you know, women that have HD have it with every pregnancy and I'm like, oh, here's me, the lucky one, rubbing it in. Um, But I still did have really prevalent nausea and vomiting. So with Jude, I had it up until about 24 weeks where I was still medicated every day. So I was still taking the same medications that I did with Colby Mm-hmm. Um, they were just more effective. So I also knew to jump on the medications quicker and had a really supportive doctor. So I didn't actually require hospitalization for my um, other pregnancies. But part of me is like, is that just because you knew and you got on the medication quicker and you didn't have that weight loss because you were more proactive in your care? Mm. 
Well, it just shows how important that is. Yeah, yeah. I think had I taken until 12 weeks to get that medication and, and that support, I probably would have lost weight and would have needed hospitalisation for IV fluids. And, you know, I had a toddler or two kids that I was running around after. It would have depleted much quicker had I yeah. not had, yeah, the medication there. And so it was with your second baby that you experienced birth trauma. Is that right? Yeah. Was that psychological and physical or can you walk us through this birth trauma? Yeah. So my first birth with Colby was pretty textbook. It was spontaneous vaginal delivery. Um, Everyone cringes when you say the word vaginal, but I think natural just needs to be binned for starters. Yeah, that's not I agree. a fair thing. No, so spontaneous vaginal delivery, um, he, it was three hours from two centimetres to first feed. He was out in three pushes. He was nearly four and a half kilos. So it was yeah. all like. So you're, this was like a unicorn birth. Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And because I'd had HG, I expected it to be like mm. this really long, drawn out labour, but he was bullet a gate out. And so because of that, Every single interaction I had with a midwife, with a GP, with anyone was like, this labour will very likely be quicker, Mm. the baby will most likely be bigger, and it may happen sooner. So my whole pregnancy, I was like, I'm going to walk in, have a cup of coffee, baby's out, done, like we're going to have another whopper. And that really set me up for failure, I think, not even thinking about different birthing situations. It was just like, yep, it's going to be another three pushes, he's out no worries. So I went over with both of my first two. And so it was getting towards the end and we were having to look at inductions because I was reaching that two weeks after due date. And the day before I was meant to be induced, I got really breathless and normally I wouldn't think anything of it, but it was not settling down. I thought, oh, I'm going to be in at six in the morning anyway. Let's just go and check on baby. And so from that, they thought I had a blood clot, a pulmonary embolism, which is quite an issue in pregnancy. So because of that, I then had to be transferred to another hospital. So I went from being in our local little hospital to being put in an ambulance to a hospital an hour away. And then that all settled down. It was great. Induction the next day and throughout the whole day. So 12 hours of laboring and just failure to progress. Eventually we had an, I had an epidural because I was just exhausted. I'd had two hours sleep at this point from the day before, um, had an epidural and that's when everything sort of went haywire. So there is a risk when you have an epidural that it can affect baby's heart rate and they can, um, experience bradycardia, which is low heart rate, which was a risk I didn't know about. I feel like Had I known that, I would have been like, okay, this could happen. Oh, look, it's happening. But it was like a holy shit, what's happening? And this is where my medical knowledge was the biggest detriment because I knew everything they were saying. They were trying to talk in medical jargon so that I would be unaware and they could just be like, oh, something's up. But I could hear everything they're saying. I'm like, Gaz, shit's hitting the fan. Mm. So his heart rate dropped and stayed down. And so with that, we had to rush in for an emergency Caesar. The surgery itself, it was daunting because you've gone from being in this room all day with just a midwife popping their head in, seeing if you need anything, to having like 10 people in the room and you're in this bright theatre room and you suddenly can't feel your legs. That was daunting in itself. Well, here you are thinking you're going to be pushing your baby out 
next minute you're in surgery. Yeah, it was yeah. such such a contrast. And I was lucky that I had worked in hospitals and, you know, knew that that was a blood pressure cuff and that noise was the IV pump. And, you know, I was familiar with the surroundings. So I, that saved me in a sense. But it was the after that I really struggled with so much. So Jude was cut out, heard his cries, had a bit of a cuddle that was great, and then he was taken away. And that was the last time that I would see him for nearly three hours, which was just, you think about the moments first, you know, post-birth, that you're snuggling and you're loving on each other and it's beautiful and skin to skin. And I got sent to recovery, which was empty by the nurses. So that was kind of isolating in itself. And this was a multi-level facility as well. So I knew that I'd gone on a lift. So I knew I wasn't on the same floor as my baby, but didn't know where he was. I figured he was with my husband, but no one told me that. I didn't know if he was alive. Like he'd gone from having this really low heart rate to just being somewhere else. So no update? Nothing for over two hours. Did not hear a single word about baby and I didn't know the process of a C-section recovery. So I didn't know that every 10 minutes someone would pull the sheets back to check my bleeding and change a pad without warning. I just felt entirely violated. So here I was just having the sheets pulled back every 10 minutes, then shoving something else between my legs and no idea where baby was. And so in hindsight, do you look back and realize the trauma in those moments? Yeah, it took me, I think I realized, I didn't know it was a thing. Mm. There must have been an awareness or something because I remember it took me a month to be able to even look at the videos from theatre. I couldn't bring myself to do it because I just couldn't go back to that time. I just couldn't even think about the birth, couldn't think about the delivery. I just had to think about this baby here. So it took me, it was sort of in retrospect because I blocked it out. I think most women would be able to relate to that because especially if you didn't know that birth trauma was a thing. And so what did your postpartum recovery then look like or your postpartum experience then after your second? Because I imagine you would compare your recoveries then too because they would be very different. Yeah. So after my first, I walked back to ward. They kept giving me Panadol and I was like, what's this for? Do I have to take this? And they were like, no, but don't you need it? I was like, no, I'm fine. Can, can I go for a walk? No issues whatsoever. And because I'd had HG, I was on top of the world. I was like, I'm not spewing. I can eat. This is great. After Jude, after the emergency C-section, again, I was really lucky that I knew what I was in for recovery-wise. So being a physio at a hospital, I went in and gave every mum the talk about, you've got this wound, here's how you support it, don't do this for six weeks. So I kind of knew what I was in for. But it was only when I was thinking about this when you sent the questions through. I was trying to do way too much. I I was doing very gentle and it was appropriate Pilates activation stuff at three weeks. And now I'm like, no way. No, I'm lucky to get off the couch. Mm. But I think I just had this drive to kind of prove that I was recovering because I had a C-section, but I'm okay. You know, I had a C-section, but look at me killing this recovery and I'm doing so well, which I'm sure I'm not the only person that would feel that in having that. You've got to prove yourself because you feel like your delivery has been taken away. So you've got to kind of really smash the recovery and be doing extra fine. Isn't that funny? It's almost like, yeah, you're not allowed to recover. You just have to be able to bounce back. Yeah. 
yeah, I really pushed it. That's so bizarre to me because if you broke your leg, I imagine your attitude would have been very different. How is, you know, a birth different? I don't understand. Yeah, it blows my mind. And so Mm. now that I've been much more relaxed this time, everyone's like, oh, that's really weird for you to be still on the couch or still going slow. I'm like, yeah, but I I need it this time. I always say to other mums that I'm treating, someone has a knee replacement. They have a designated person to drive them around for six weeks because they know they can't drive for six weeks. Mm -hmm. They have a work certificate for six weeks. They have a script for pain relief that will often last at least a month until they can get back. They've pre-booked their physio appointments. Like the preparation and support is unreal. You have a baby. Okay, yeah, you're allowed a week of rest and then off you go. And so how many visits did you have after? Was it just one? Did you get anything? Yeah, just the six-week check. Didn't have a wound check because I had dissolvable stitches and a vacuum dressing, so didn't even have like the two-week wound check that some people get. It was just the six-week baby check, which was a, oh, what contraception do you want to use? It baffles me. And so how did this then impact your well-being? I was lucky that that recovery was pretty good. And I think because I had sort of packed away all of that birth experience, it was left until later, which sounds to be quite common because in speaking with Amy Dawes from Australasian Birth Trauma Association, the average time when women access help is at about 12 to 18 months postpartum because you don't have time to deal with it. No. You don't. In the newborn phase, you're just surviving. And so, yeah, I didn't realise the impact that it had until later when Jude was about that age that I could dedicate the mind space to it because I just couldn't fathom it beforehand. Hmm. How interesting. And it makes sense to me because I always say to people, if you bury it, it's going to come back up at some point. And you may not be able to connect those dots when it does come back up. And it's only really when you do seek support that you kind of have these light bulb moments and think, oh yeah, wait a second. I never actually dealt with what happened a year ago. Yeah. It took me so long to recognize that it was. And we were just lucky that about the time that Jude was that age was when, you know, we were talking with Amy and, and Emma and I had started the podcast. And so these discussions are happening a lot more. So I feel like I'm only talking about it now because I only realized it then. It was only in retrospect that I went, oh, actually, those feelings that I had about that birth weren't okay. And, you know, that probably did trigger some things that happened down the line. And so just in my brief discussions with you, you talk about your postpartum rage. What did these episodes look like? Um, Oh, man, I was so angry. (laughs) I had always had a history of depression and anxiety and, and knew how to manage that fine. But when the rage came in, the big moment that made me go, this isn't normal, was that I had put Jude to bed and told Colby that I was running away. I was like, that's it. Mum is done. I'm out. I'm going away and I'm never coming back. I, I just can't. You two have to live on your own now. And I remember going to bed and Googling bipolar. Because I just thought, how can you go from, because afterwards I was like, how dare you say that to your children? That's the most traumatic thing you can say to them and sneaking back in to look at them and kiss them. But in that moment, I was like, I can't be anywhere near anyone. Mm. And so, yeah, this anger would just 
come on almost instantaneously. It would take the smallest thing to trigger. So I then convinced myself I had bipolar because there was nothing else to say having this sudden anger. There was no other evidence that I could find that kind of detailed it or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it would just take the smallest thing. Colby would spill a cup of water as two and a half year olds do. And I'd be like, fuck this. Mm. That's it. I've had enough. Go to your room. I've got to clean shit up again. I'd lash out at Gary when he got home because I'm like, this is all your fault. Nobody's here to help me. It was verbal anger. I would punch things. I would slam doors. I would put my nails into my palms and just get to the point where there was like full nail marks in my palms from squeezing just to feel something other than the anger. Yeah, saying horrible things. Gaz copped the most of it. The kids, you know that there's things that you can't say to kids Mm. or, you know, they're your kids. You draw a line with your kids or as your husband, you're just like, well, he's an adult. And they're safe. Yeah. So he copped a lot of it. I just wish that there had been a bit more out there for me to go, oh, you aren't bipolar or, oh, you don't have split personality disorder. This is just... All of your loneliness and your overwhelm and your sadness is just presenting as anger yes, rather than sadness. And if there had just been one thing there to make you go, oh, this can happen with postnatal depression, with postpartum anxiety, because I did all like I did the Edinburgh depression scale. I did all the assessments and wasn't really flagging on any of them. Yeah, they were asking the wrong questions, a screening for the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I wasn't sad. I wasn't low mood. I was just angry. I'm so lucky that I was clever enough and experienced enough to sort of make those connections eventually. Yeah. And so do you think living rurally had an impact on those things with, say, lack of support or barriers seeking help? Yeah, definitely. What is it like for a rural woman struggling with the things that you struggled with, even in your pregnancies and things and and after your birth? I think the first part of being rural, this isn't for every rural family, but we're isolated from our family as well. So my family's 500 k's away, Gary's family's 300 k's away. So there's that lot of isolation to start with. Yes. So that's a whole other factor, that sort of social isolation. But then we do have limited access to healthcare. We're at a bit of a crisis point with GPs here at the moment. There's only four GPs for a town of 15,000. Wow. And two of the GPs are the dedicated antenatal GPs. So they, they do what they can, but they have to see every pregnant woman throughout our town and all the outlying towns as well. So that pretty much reduces their workload. So access to healthcare is limited here anyway. Mm. So, yeah, we do have some mental health support. It's just not, you know, there's one place. So if you can't get in there or, you know, you might know that person personally and not feel comfortable seeing them professionally, which is another thing in rural health is that you don't get the anonymity that you do in metropolitan areas. So you're likely dealing with someone that you know, you know, your husband's friend. So that can really limit a lot of people as well, I think. So that's in town. We do have a bigger town, which is an hour away, which doesn't seem much, but if you're in the throes of mental well-being or physical illness, the last thing you want to do is put the kids in a car and drive them an hour and plan it around nap times and take them to an appointment. And yeah, so that really has an impact as well. Yeah. If anything, that adds to your anxiety and 
oh, your mood. Yeah, thinking thinking of getting them there, especially a baby. Like yeah. if they're a little bit older, it's okay. But trying to get a baby around nap times and feeding and it's just a nightmare. So it gets put off. So we really rely on telehealth mm-hmm. and having things like online resources. Mm-hmm. So I always pander and their online chat is always my first port of call because it's accessible for us here. The one benefit of COVID was that so many places were granted access to telehealth. And so that really helped us out here because we weren't having to travel to these appointments and things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's the physical isolation in being distanced from specialists and appointments and things like that. There's the social isolation in that you might not be near your family. And then there's the other aspect in that you might not feel comfortable discussing your health with people that you know personally it can be tricky can be very tricky and I find as well we were just talking about this before having different takes on things and perspectives and research when you have a variety of healthcare workers you know just going to say one type you may only being looked at in one way whereas if you have that variety the others can pick up on other things so yeah you can seek a second opinion if you you know if you're dismissed by someone that you're seeing here or if you feel like you're being dismissed by someone who's treating you here if you feel like that's not a valid thing worth pursuing if you feel like it's not important you're dismissed and there's no other options for you to seek that out again like you could in a bigger metro area you could go well you know what I'm going to go and see another GP mm-hmm. or you know I didn't feel great with that psychologist or that counselor but here's another one that I'll try. Yeah. You don't get that. So I think that that limits a lot of people in pursuing care as well. If you have that one experience where you don't feel validated, then you're probably not going to go back. And so that's another thing with being rural. Yeah. Wow. Big challenges. Big challenges. Mm, yeah. And so you also talk about having a prolapse after, was it your second born? Yeah. we found I was diagnosed with the prolapse after due, but in looking through like my history, we, we probably think that it happened after Colby oh. because he was so big and came out so quick. That was a risk factor in itself mm-hmm. for prolapse. So we kind of went, well, that's most likely where it came from, along with you know, I'd done lots of heavy lifting. I manually handle people for work. So there was all those kind of risk factors that we went, oh, it was most likely happened then, but it was never picked up on because not once did anyone check. And I never went to a women's health physio because I didn't know about them, even though I'm a physio. Yeah, it's insane, isn't but it? But no one ever checked it. Mm. No one ever went. And I'd had internals, you know, I had pap smears and no one went, oh, have you ever seen anyone about this or things aren't quite, you know, where they should be? So it was only diagnosed after Jude. So it could have been both. We don't know. Mm. But we're fairly confident that it would have been there since Colby. But I was really lucky. I had a good experience. Mm. I had done a course the weekend before, which was all about, it was with one of my favourite pelvic physios, all about treating women with prolapse and, and pelvic floor dysfunction and keeping them training. So I had to spend a weekend going, oh, women with prolapse can do this. They can do heavy deadlifts and they can do jumps and they can skip. 
So when I was diagnosed, I was like, cool, how are we going to find a way for me to still do these things? Mm. So you were in a good headspace about it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, cool, here's another challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which, yeah, I was like, all right, let's see what this prolapse can do there. So I was really lucky that it was a positive experience for me, but that's not the case for so many. But it is kind of refreshing to hear a positive experience because that tells me that it's not the end. There are answers there are help and while your body has changed it doesn't have to be a bad thing right yeah it just shows the power in knowledge I knew that women could do these things I knew that you know it didn't mean that I was only going to lift my baby for the rest of my life I was armed with knowledge to go okay we might need to change some things but here is the potential had I been diagnosed two weeks before I probably would have gone well that's the end of my life because I like picking up heavy things and that's where my value in myself as an athlete was. If I can't do that, I give up. So it was purely that I'd had that weekend of knowledge that really shaped my experience. Mm. And how do you say we get this knowledge out there? Because, you know, just chatting to the women that I do chat to and that send me their stories, a lot of them say to me, oh, I only know about this because of your Instagram page, which just kills me because it's just Instagram like it's not even a not even a thing I'm just repeating studies and research or yeah working with a physio to get the word out there and that really kills me but a lot of women before babies or even after babies like yourself don't know about how important pelvic health is or or even what a prolapse is so how do you suggest we continue spreading the word about this? And, you know, I also find a lot of the time too, we as women, as people, as humans, it's probably part of human nature. For example, hyperemesis, right? So, oh, hyperemesis. Yeah, I know what that is. Oh, I've never had it. I'm fine. Push it aside. And I feel like with birth, oh, I've had really good births, prolapse. Oh, it's fine. And it's pushed aside and people aren't really paying attention to it. And then they hit menopause and start having issues. For me, I'm like, yes, it's not right now that you may need to be talking about it as if it's going to happen to you. But you need to know how to do your pelvic floor exercises properly. You need to know what exercises you're supposed to be doing because not everybody's the same and what your risk factors are. So how do you suggest that we get this out there? I think the first thing is... It's you don't have to have had a baby or been pregnant to have pelvic floor dysfunctional prolapse. 100%. First things first is that, I, and I don't know whether that happens in like high school as part of our, you know, you, you do sex education, learn about periods. By the way, it's not normal to have pain with sex. You should be able to put an, a tampon in without pain. If you're having these things, you should see someone, whether it happens then. And, you know, we learn about pregnancy and stuff and you put a condom on a banana, that's great. Whether it starts there, whether it becomes part of our, you know, we have to go for a pap smear and it's less, you know, it's only five years now rather Mm. than two years, which is great, but it's, you know, less opportunity to have that conversation. When you have a pap smear, do do they do a screen there? Because there is a questionnaire that we use as physios that any health provider could use to screen someone for pelvic floor dysfunction. Could that be an opportunity? I think that it should be more included in our antenatal care. So you do your birthing classes and you learn how to swaddle a baby and you learn all this stuff and they show you an epidural needle and that's great. There's nothing on the after or what the symptoms are like. So whether I think it should be discussed there Mm -hmm. as well. And ideally, 
we'd kind of be flagging it more in that postpartum care as well in that first, you know, everything feels heavy in the first six weeks and your presentation in that six-week period isn't an accurate representation of what your pelvic floor function may be in months or years time but flagging it there just saying it is common to have some incontinence post-birth that's acceptable for you know you've just been through the effort of birth or you've just had a c-section and the medication can affect it and all those sorts of things but if that continues beyond x amount of time try and see someone the other thing we need to stop is the normalization of incontinence which just does my head in and it's getting better just because all of your friends can't jump on a trampoline or cross their legs when they sneeze and oh it's so funny it's not I'm glad that you can make light of it and you're comfortable talking about it but it can be debilitating and it can really impact people's lives you know having to know where the nearest public toilet is when you're out with the kids or you can't run after the kids or put there was a woman who couldn't even put her kids into the car seat, which how many times a day does mm-hmm. that happen, without having urinary incontinence? So several times a day. Yeah. That's impacting your life. So, yeah, stopping the normalisation of it. Discuss it. Learn about it. But don't normalise it and don't, you know, make light of the fact that it's something that you have to live with forever because there's things that can be yes. done. You know, there's people you can see and and interventions that can be had. So I think they're some of the biggest ones. Mm, Great. Love that. And so you've just had a planned cesarean then. I'm curious to know what your decisions were around having a planned cesarean because I do find that they are quite stigmatized Mm. depending on who you talk to as well, of course, or who's in your Mm. circles. I'm just curious to know what went into that decision. So I started this pregnancy being like, I'm having a VBAC. I'm... I had to have a C-section last time and I'm a birthing goddess and I'm going to earn my ego back by having a V-back and was adamant. Also, I didn't want to have the recovery. Mm. I was like, it's so much easier when you have a vaginal delivery. I mean, excluding the horrible things that can happen like you had. But a general uncomplicated vaginal delivery is pretty easy recovery. So I wanted that and we discussed it and then it was great and then we factored in prolapse and you can't say that vaginal delivery is causative of prolapse, but there's a yes. link. Um, and then we also found out that I had a marginal cord insertion. So rather than the umbilical cord in, attaching to the middle of the placenta, it attached on the edge. Oh. So that was an issue for delivery of the placenta yes. in that quite often they'll traction it to, to get the placenta out. That wouldn't have been an option. So I would have had to deliver the placenta on my own, which is okay, but it was a higher risk of hemorrhage. Right. So I was like, with that and the pelvic floor, I was like, you know, it's really not. Who am I proving it to by having a VBAC? Is it in my best interest? Is it in my future self's best interest to have a VBAC? No, it's probably not. We can mitigate all of this risk by having a C-section. So I kind of made it. I kind of had it made for me, but I'm comfortable with Mm -hmm. it now. And so you call this your healing birth, which I find I love because in your your second birth, you talk about having a traumatic cesarean experience and then planning for a cesarean again. So what elements of it was healing for you? So I was much more informed this time. I had processed a lot of that trauma from Jude's birth and understood why it was that it was the psychological trauma and being separated from him and 
not getting that flood of oxytocin, the love hormone from being skin to skin with him. So I had processed that and that chapter was sort of closed. I asked so many questions. I asked anyone who'd had an emergency Caesar. I asked people who'd had a planned Caesar about their experiences. And it was quite common that it was it was a calm experience. It was a fulfilling experience. It was redeeming in that it kind of settled all their fears from their emergency C-section. And I wanted to be as in control as I could. So, and the theatre staff were lovely in that, you know, the midwife said, you're going to walk to theatre because you can walk. You're not passive. You are a birthing mum and you are going to deliver this baby. So you're going to walk to theatre. And I loved Mm. that. I would not have thought to ask for that, but she was like, you're walking there. You're not a patient. You're not vulnerable. You are You are owning this. So that was so good. Kind of empowering in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it was the best and it was damn right waddle, but I bet. <laughs> it was great. And it did, it, it did really set the tone. So that was really good. And I think it just, it was that knowledge. I knew the process of what was going to happen. I had asked people, I had looked at like several different, different hospitals protocols and like procedure lists that is meant for the theatre staff I had read them and revised them and looked at them and so I kind of knew each level what was happening and and could process it but it was just a really nice experience there was moments where I was tearful you know moments where I became a bit overwhelmed and that's fine that's to be expected Um, but not once I wasn't scared I felt somewhat in control I felt present I wasn't being operated on I was part of this experience you were having a baby yeah it really was redeeming yeah yeah and I was kept in the loop and you know they said what was happening along every step of the way which I understand likely can't happen in an emergency situation but I knew what was happening I knew how far away my baby was they dropped the they offered to drop the sheet down so I could see him being lifted out yeah so it was just it was really really pleasant experience it wasn't fearful it was emotional yeah but I was able to process it quite Mm. easily interesting that fear is such a prevalent thing in birth these days regardless of how you birth your baby and I really do believe that reducing that fear or just completely eliminating it can really lead to a positive experience regardless of how you birth your baby so I love that I love that that happened. Yeah, it was it was really nice. It was and it was I had had vocalized it to some of the the staff, you know, some of the midwives in particular and the doctor. I had said, "Look, I I had this experience last time and I'm I'm a bit worried about it. What can we do?" But then there were staff that didn't know anything about it and went above and beyond to to support me, and, you know, the the surgical assistant who didn't know anything about my past birth was like, "You're doing this. It's you, mama." you're having a baby, you're so strong, you're so brave. And I was just like that. It was such a beautiful thing to say. He didn't know how much I needed to hear that, but it was such a, a supportive environment. Mm. It, it wasn't clinical at mm. all. It's so refreshing to hear. Yeah, it was really So nice. going on from that mm. then, Australia's belly birth rate is 34%, which is almost, it's over double of the recommendations of the World Health Organization, which is only 15%. And April being Caesarean Awareness Month, there's been quite a bit of discussion about whether or not we should be raising awareness for Caesarean birth. Do you think that we should be normalizing belly births? I'm curious to know your perspective. Yeah, so there's two two parts that I think of. I think firstly, every woman's birthing experience 
she should be able to relate with someone else about that. She should feel supported and, you know, it, it happened for whatever reason it happened. We don't need to dismiss that or make her feel bad about that. You know, she doesn't choose that everyone else has C-sections. That was her own her own experience. So I think we do need to support other women and maybe, you know, it's, I don't know, I don't know if normalising is the right term, but we definitely need to be supporting women and having that discussion and creating awareness around it. But, and I don't know if this is only relevant to our local health district, but the rate of C-sections increased. And this is a few years ago. I was looking at the evidence from when I was pregnant with Jude. So the prevalence of C-sections had increased, which would be the, the number, the statistic that you're talking about. As a result of that, in a bid to avoid emergency C-sections, they started inducing birth. They increased the rate of inductions, which then resulted in an increase in emergency Mm -hmm. C-sections because induction is a risk factor for emergency C-sections. So I think that has a bit to do with the statistics anyway. Yes, and this was my thing because when I was reading all about this, I'm going, yes, but what is behind this statistic? We need to be looking at the factors that are involved here. We can't just throw a number around and then say, well, this is really high. We need to stop. You know, what, what, what's behind this number? So, yeah. And it looks like it's because we're intervening more. And, you know, so I totally get, you know, having that induction when you're, it's quite routine when you're 40 plus 10. And I understand that because there's not a lot of evidence to support the function of the placenta beyond that gestation. Great. I hear of it happening a lot earlier of inductions being offered at 38 and 39 weeks that aren't necessarily for medical reasons that may not be urgent. And, you know, I can't comment on it beyond the experience that I have. So I think there's there's a factor in that. So, yeah, I think, and I, I think there's been becoming a shift in less medicalised births, you know, women understanding their rights and understanding their, their options and working for less intervention where possible. But... I wish someone had said, oh, you know, the likelihood of your induction ending up in a C-section is X percent because there, there is a causative link yes. there. There's a link. And then also giving you more information about cesareans as well. So, you know. Having it as an option. Yeah. Knowing that it could be on the card. Yes. Would change your experience should it happen. I do agree. And. You're not blindsided. No, but also the implications that come after having a cesarean. So say you want to have more children and the risk factors involved around having a VBAC. And before I'd had children and even after I had my firstborn, I'd, I'd never had a cesarean, but I. I guess was sharing people's stories about them and then soon realizing, oh, hold on a second. There are risk factors after a cesarean and having more children. Yeah. But when you're thrown in an emergency cesarean situation, that's not going to be a topic of conversation. And then you've, you're living no. with this for, you know, the rest of your life or the rest of your child experience. Yeah. <laughs> having children, birthing yeah. children. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. I just think at the end of the day, we need to talk about it because that you shouldn't feel ostracized for having yes, a C-section and there shouldn't be a stigma around it. So yes, we do need to talk about it. We do need to acknowledge that it's not an easy way out. I had someone say, oh, I'm having a C-section next time. I don't want to feel labor. Oh, but you want to feel postpartum? <laughs> I would take that labor of the first time. Like I can't wee, I can't even move. Like this is horrific. So my last question for you was, and I really love this question. I love to ask women this question. uh, Where do you see your growth since becoming a mother? So who were you before and who are you now? 
I was a control freak before and I still am now to some extent, but I was very, had to be in control of things and very self-conscious so to the point of detriment of starving myself and forcing myself to run. And now since having kids, I'm like, no one's looking at me. <laughs> kids don't care that I've got a saggy stretch tummy. They couldn't give a hoot. So I think my biggest growth is in that I've come to accept myself and I definitely love myself more now than I ever did pre-kids. I've got a, a respect for my body instead of loathing it because I did. I loathed my body before and they've taught me flexibility and resilience. You know, I can't have a rigid routine because someone's going to shit their pants and someone's going to draw on the wall and that routine's out the window. So yeah, they've definitely taught me resilience and flexibility. Oh, I love that. A little more self-compassion, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 I'm much more gentle on myself now than I ever was pre-kids. And my worth has changed. You know, my worth isn't in what I look like or the the image that I project. My worth is in the compassion that my kids show and the fact that they're little people that are going to go out into the universe and hopefully show kindness to others. And that's more of a reflection of me and my mothering than fitting into size 10 Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I really love about you is your realness online. I find that, especially on Instagram, social media, you know, people only show the shiny, pretty, happy parts of motherhood. Yeah, bouncing back, look at me now, before and afters, you know, look how well behaved my children are or, you know, they only show the the shiny parts of their day. But I love your how you go against the grain. And you do really show the everyday challenges of mum life. How important do you think it is to show this side of life? Because I really think that you online, this is what you're about. It blows my mind that it's not normal. Like why am I a person that stands out for being for admitting that my kid's running around naked and I haven't yeah. fed them yet? <laughs> Why am I a standout for that? Like, shouldn't the standouts be the people with blow waves that are tiny? Like, they should be the minority. And the wow, look at this! I just it I, it baffles me. I maybe I've just always been an oversharer, but it's just it's just come so comfortably to me that I'm like. And again, that's probably only happened since I had kids because I would have been projecting a very different image before. But yeah, it's important because it it breaks my heart. The amount of times I've gotten a message that says, oh, thank you for showing this. Everyone does this. It's not just me. (laughs) Everyone loses. Yes. It's not just me. You're all doing this. But why is it? It's just so sad that someone felt that it was only them until they happened to stumble across this random chick on Instagram swearing and ranting (laughs) and whatever. Like why did you feel alone before that? Why did it take for me to get bored on maternity leave and start yakking into a camera for you to not feel alone. It's just so sad. It's so sad. It's really, yeah, it's really heartbreaking. Um, But I think there's also that I think I, I get that interaction more because of the anonymity, because it is easier to admit that to a stranger than to go to your best friend and go, look, this is, I don't like my kids today. I really don't want to be around them today. I love them, but I don't like them. I said that yesterday. I love you, but I don't like you right now. Give me some time, please. Yeah, I don't know whether it's just that people don't feel like they can say that 
to their physical network. And so I get that more because I, it baffles me the number of times I get it or someone saying, thank you. I'm like, I'm not mm. doing anything, but thanks. Thanks for thanking me. You know, this is just normal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think it is. I would love to see it more and not, uh, oh, sorry, my house is so messy. There's a blanket <laughs> on the floor while I'm doing this paid product thing. Like that's not, you're not fooling yeah. anyone. I would love to see it more, but yeah. Mm. I think it's getting, getting there. there. I think you definitely see more people having a today was a really shit day. I'm seeing much more of it now. And I think it just gives people a chance yes. to relate. That's where the yeah. important lies. In it. It's not that I'm being vulnerable, which people say I am. I'm just not shutting up. It's giving other people a chance to relate and go, oh, thank God, yeah. me too. Like this morning, I've had four people say, oh, my kid did that last night too. And I'm like, see, it doesn't change your experience, but you go, oh, it's not just me, I'm not alone, someone else is having a shit day-to-day too and there's support in knowing mm. it's not just me. So, yeah, it would be good for it to happen more but have it happen genuinely. Yes. I I was going to yeah, say not, that, yeah. Because it's a bit like the body positivity yes. thing where they're like, oh, I yeah. have rolls. <laughs> yeah. Mate, no, they're you don't. <laughs> Stand up, yeah. you're fine. And just because you pinched your thigh together doesn't mean it's cellulite. You're not fooling anyone. So, so long as it's not, doesn't go along that vein and kind of cheapens it it really, doesn't it? It it devalues the people that are genuinely reaching out. Quite often I see it as a call for help too. It's at the point where they can't verbalise or they're in the middle of a a really high peak in their their mental Mm. illness and can't express it any other way by a verbal vent on a post yep. and that's you know that can sort of be a sign for people yes. to reach out and help yeah yeah well thank you so much for yeah. sharing your experiences with us today and being vulnerable and being real and being yourself I love it all and you had some really good insight as well and I'm sure our listeners will get a lot from your story so thanks Caitlin thanks for having me I hope so it really does it warms my heart when someone says me too or thank you you know or thanks for sharing that it it does mean so much to me thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode if you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health please don't hesitate to reach out we would love to hear from you you can find us at the power of birth on instagram and facebook or on our website thepowerofbirth.net if you loved this episode we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends the conversation has to start somewhere thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode